Vikings of the Pandemic, Episode 2, Garter, Greenland, August 1204. Prelate John Arneson, Bishop of Greenland, stood at the prow of his longship, slowly making his way up Ines Fjord towards Garter. He had been bishop since 1187, but left his diocese in 1202 to travel to Rome to visit Pope Innocent. The construction of the cathedral at Garter that began in 1150 was complete, and the bishop went to Rome to secure the Pope's blessing, as well as new furnishings, so that the cathedral could be officially dedicated. His journey was successful, and he brought back with him sacred objects from the holy city of Jerusalem, given to him by Pope Innocent for the dedication. As the ship sailed up the fjord, the bishop was greeted by families lining the cliffs and beaches. His ship was followed by a flotilla of skiffs. A ship coming from the east, carrying goods vital to Greenlanders such as salt, honey, iron, and barley, was always greeted with excitement by Greenland settlers. The ship brought news from the outside world. The Bishop departed Nidaros, the seat of the Archbishopric of Norway, three months ago. His party boarded his ocean-going ship at Bergen and traveled west, making stops at Orkney, Faroe, and Iceland before reaching Greenland. Clerics supporting the bishop's mission in Greenland were on board as well as some Norwegian and Icelandic families seeking land in Greenland. The bishop was always looking for new settlers for his growing diocese. Traders seeking the highly valued ivory furs and pelts of Greenland were also on board, invited by the bishop. He was anxious to increase Garter's trade in these items. Greenland was a young settlement established by Eric the Red an Icelander in the late 900s. There was much curiosity in Norway about Eric's son, Leif Eriksson, who went on to explore Vinland further west across the ocean and build a homestead there. Magnus Harvardsen of Orkney, one of the traders on the ship, was hoping to sail to these western lands to see Vinland for himself. Greenland was governed by the Godi, or law speaker, who was elected by the body called the Athling, representing landowners. Since the early 1100s, when the Diocese of Garter was established, the church was also influential in Greenland affairs. The church was the place people turned to when they were in spiritual and physical need, and each landowner financially supported the church by paying a tithe. As the ship navigated the fjord, the passengers noted the sparkling blue of the glacial waters, the green hillsides and pastures, and the snow-capped mountains surrounding fields golden with rain. Skiffs, both small and large, lay along the rocky beaches, while a few larger ships sat at their moorings. Churches, built of stone, dominated the hillsides and were surrounded by homes and barns, Grazing cattle and sheep dotted the hillsides. The settlement of Garter was located at the end of Ina's Fjord and sat at the top of a gently sloping hill. The cathedral was built on a large plateau surrounded by glacier-topped mountains. 
the passengers would have to climb the hill to see the cathedral with its bell tower, taller than any structure on the island. When the longship reached the end of the fjord and dropped its anchor in the shallow water, disembarking passengers were taken to shore by men in skiffs who had rowed out to meet them. Two men, one old and one young, stood on the deck of the ship examining what lay before them. They were both members of the Wart clan of Orkney. The older man, Paul Olofsson, was part of the household of the Bishop of Orkney, Bjorn Kolbeinsson, and was senior cleric at St. Magnus Cathedral in Kirkwall. He was representing the Bishop of Orkney at the dedication ceremony. His young companion was the traitor Magnus, the son of Havard, Paul's cousin. Havard was the son of John Work of Shappensay, Orkney, the fortress keeper of Orkney, and the Wart clan leader. As young men, Paul and his cousin Havard had sailed to the Holy Land in 1150. Paul was a scribe for Bishop William of Orkney, who was accompanying the Earl of Orkney on a crusade. Fifteen ships carrying noblemen and prominent landowners left the Orkney Islands to accompany the Earl and Bishop William to the Holy Land. Havard equally signed on as a seaman. After his return from the Holy Land, the Earl pledged to build a cathedral in Kirkwall in honor of his martyred uncle. Years later, Paul was head cleric of that cathedral named for St. Magnus, and he and Havard's son Magnus were sailing to Greenland together. Paul had studied for the priesthood at Skaholt, Iceland's center of learning, along with his Icelandic cousins. The Wart clan had family relations in Iceland. Despite his age of 70 years, he yearned to take one last sea voyage before he retired. He talked to clerics and seamen passing through Orkney from Greenland and was impressed by the strong faith of these hardy islanders. He wanted to see the cathedral they built, honoring Nicholas, the saint of sailors, and convinced the Bishop of Orkney that it was important for a representative of his diocese to be present at the dedication ceremony. Magnus grew up sailing with his father, Havard, who, upon returning from the Crusades, became a merchant and trader, plying the ports of Scotland, the Hebrides, Northern Ireland, and Iceland. Once they sailed to Greenland on a trading ship, and Magnus wanted to return and explore the area. Magnus planned on remaining in Greenland for two years. He knew the Greenlanders sailed regularly to Markland and Vinland in their search for wood, which was in short supply in Greenland, and he wanted to go with them. Paul and Magnus followed the bishop, who was striding quickly up the hill. He was a vigorous man for his age. Bishop Arneson had been building up the large garter holdings since the beginning of his tenure. He was anxious to find out the condition of the farm buildings, the storerooms, and the livestock. Besides the sanctuary and farmstead, the grounds contained a dining hall, a kitchen hospice, and the bishop's residence. A growing crowd of settlers was gathering to welcome the bishop home in the large fields surrounding the cathedral. The decision was made the next day after a great feast 
to hold the dedication ceremony in the fall after the Greenland men returned from the annual hunt in Norrisseter and before ice blocked the fjords. This would allow settlers from around the diocese, even those from the western settlement, to attend the celebration. Messengers were sent out across Greenland and preparations began in earnest to accommodate and feed the parishioners who would be attending. Magnus shared a small room in the hospice with Paul. Much of his day was spent with the bishop's helmsman, Uni Sorlison. He helped Uni and his oarsmen unload the ship. They took the holy relics from Jerusalem to the small chapel located on the north end of the cathedral. Garter's senior cleric, Peter Halvardson, together with Paul Olofsson and Einstein Eriksson, a visiting cleric and scholar from Iceland, stood in the chapel as Bishop Arnson carefully opened the wooden crate and lifted out a small chest. The shape and color of the chest was suggestive of, of the Ark of the Covenant. It was secured by a lock, and the bishop pulled out a golden key from under his robe to unlock it. Who would have thought that sacred relics of the early Christian church would end up in the furthest corner of the world, thought Paul. Even St. Magnus Cathedral did not have such relics. Eagerly, he and his fellow clerics looked at the items that the bishop removed from the chest. They included a golden goblet inlaid with rubies and a bejeweled gold cross. Both of these items were wrapped in colorful silk and were said to be from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Underneath lay fragments of brick and rocks from the holy city and a leather pouch filled with soil. The bishop would explain the origins of these relics to the entire congregation during the dedication ceremony. He carefully laid the back on the chest and placed the chest in a niche that had been dug into the chapel sandstone wall. Magnus was introduced to Nagel Sergertsen, the head herdsman at Garter. The Greenlanders were fond of beef and dairy products. Wealth was not measured in coins or scripts, but in land, cattle, horses, grain, and the cloth Greenlanders wove from the wool that their sheep provided. Magnus worked with livestock on his family farm in Chabonsay Island, the home of the work clan. Chabonsay was located in Kirkwall Bay and was flat, ideal grazing land. Beef produced there was exported to Norway, a nation with limited farmland. Magnus was a, was a much appreciated extra hand as preparations for the dedication ceremony proceeded. The head cook, Helga, Gala's daughter was calculating how many cattle and sheep needed to be slaughtered, how many cheeses needed to be made, how many fish needed to be caught, how many vegetables and fruits needed to be harvested, and how many loaves of bread needed to be baked. Nagley and his men were rounding up garter cattle and sheep from the hillsides, valleys, and mountain pastures where they spent the summer months. Magnus often took his midday meal with Uni and Nagley, who shared information about the eastern settlement. Uni sailed off into the western settlement and further north, where walrus, bear, and seals were hunted. He knew seamen who sailed to the western lands to collect wood. 
Both men promised to introduce Magnus to some of these seamen and hunters once the dedication ceremony was over. Magnus and Paul met for a late supper most evenings in the Great Hall. This was their chance to exchange information and views about Greenland. Paul spent his days with Peter Halvardsen and Einstein Eriksson, the scribe from Iceland, who the bishop had invited to Garter before he left for Rome. The three of them examined the tapestries, altar cloths, sconces, candles, candelabras, and vestments that came from Nadaros, deciding where they could best be placed. The sanctuary, made of sandstone, consisted of a single aisle with windows along the east and west walls. Sparsely furnished, the sanctuary contained a raised dais with a carved wooden altar an altar rail and the bishop's chair. There was no room in the longship to carry larger furnaces, such as tables, chairs, and benches for the congregates, but the bishop expected a cargo ship to arrive before the end of the shipping season, delivering these items. Paul and Einstein knew of each other before they met in Greenland. Both had studied at Skaholt, where Einstein now worked in the scriptorium. Einstein knew of the works of Orkney because a distant ancestor of the Wart clan, Roggenwald, had married an Icelandic woman from the western farmlands of Borgerbridger in Iceland. Two of Roggenwald's daughters returned to Iceland from Orkney and their descendants joined the priesthood and studied at Skaholt with Paul and Einstein. Einstein was a scribe and a scholar. Skaholt and other centers of learning in Iceland held significant collections of Latin manuscripts that were being translated into Old Norse. Icelandic scholars were recording the history of their mother country, Norway, based on these manuscripts and oral accounts. The Icelandic scalds who told and retold age-old stories of Norway's gods, kings, and vikings were their primary source. The Orkney Saga, documenting the lives of the earls of Orkney and their Viking adventures, was a recent example of their scholarship. Einstein spent the past two years talking to Greenland scalds about Eric the Red and his son Leif Eriksson. He would be returning to Iceland in the spring where he would begin to write down these accounts. Occasionally, Bishop Arneson invited the senior clerics to his residence for supper. He enjoyed entertaining the visiting scribes from Iceland and Orkney. He wanted to establish a library and scriptorium at Garter, maybe even a school. His senior cleric, Peter Halvardsen, was Norwegian and well-educated like himself. Four clergymen, two Norwegians and two Greenlanders, tended to the eastern settlement churches faithfully. An Icelandic priest, Father Scully, ministered to the western settlement from the church located on a large farm in Sandness. The bishop had not seen Father Scully for several years, but he, like the other priests, would all be returning to Garther for the dedication ceremony. The clerics were anxious to hear the bishop's news of Nadaros and Rome. The church is the only thing holding Norway together. Rome has not lifted its interdict on the country because the civil war persists, despite the fact that King Sverry secured the throne for his son, Hagen III. The bishop poured wine 
into four glasses and continued. I highly doubt that a king's representative will show up here in Greenland to collect head taxes. People look to Mother Church for stability. Over the years, through God's grace, we have secured, we have secured the property and the resources we need to serve our flock, independent of the King of Norway. His guests nodded in agreement. The church was indeed, indeed increasing in power and its tentacles were spreading throughout the Norwegian world. I can attest to how the civil war in Norway has affected Orkney, said Paul. Earl Harold of Orkney, once one of the most powerful men in Norway, was largely stripped of his power, influenced by King Sviri, because he supported the opposing family. Our ties with the Norwegian king are now very weak. And when Earl Harold dies, some wonder if the new Earl will even be appointed by the king. Bishop Bjorn, however, is well respected in Orkney and Norway. Our church lands and revenues increase each year. In Iceland, the chieftains hold sway, arguing and fighting among themselves for control of the island, said Einstein. Some scholars express the hope that the king will intervene. Several have moved away and now live at the Norwegian court. Carl Johnson, an Icelandic clergyman, was commissioned to write a history of King's theory by his son, Hakon III. Iceland has two bishops, but I am afraid that the church, except in the matter of learning and scholarship, does not seem to hold much influence on Icelandic affairs. Many Icelanders still believe in the old gods. Bishop Arneson was pleased to hear this news of the Norwegian archipelago. He did not believe that the worship of the old gods was that prevalent in Greenland, as he and his clergy had witnessed many examples of faithful and fervent worship of the one true God among the parishioners. He held great faith in the future of Greenland, a land teeming in riches as well as hardships. In early September, most of the men returned from the north in their hunting trip. The hunting trip had been successful. Some Westerners returned with them. Gorham Egelson and Thurkel Magnusson of Lillesfjord among them. They were staying at the large homestead near Bradahild belonging to Gurman Gunnarsson. Gurman was a wealthy farmer who owned an ocean-going ship that his son Ulfert sailed to Norcester. Ulfert brought Gorham and Thurgol back to his father's farm so they could attend the dedication ceremony. The farm was close to the original homestead of Eric the Red on Eriksford and just a short boat ride from Garter. One day, shortly after their return, Uni Sorlison took Magnus and Magnus to the Garnison farm so that they could hear about the hunting trip. Garman's home consisted of a large entrance with several smaller rooms adjoining where members of the family slept. This room had two windows giving it some natural light and was warm with a fire pit running down the center. Wooden benches, two chairs, and a large table stood near the fire. Wooden posts and beams and doors gave the home a solid appearance. The back door, next to a large stone fireplace where meals were 
prepared and bread was baked, led to the garden and farm buildings, including a large stone barn, several storerooms, a dairy, and a bathhouse. Several members of the family and neighbors gathered to hear Ulfur, Gorham, and Thurkel tell of their journey north. The audience included Father Loris, the Norwegian pastor of the Bradahill Church, who offered many prayers for the safe return of the hunters. We sailed north to Bear Island, where the hunting is best, said Ulfur. The island is well named, as we saw two white bears on the ice shelf there hunting seals. The seals were plentiful, and when one of the bears swam to an ice floe where many were resting, the seals scurried off into the water and were easy targets for our harpoons. One of the Halvesey hunters said we should hunt the bear that was swimming in the water, and several small skiffs that had been brought along for the hunt surrounded the bear, baiting it. This was Gurum speaking. I have gone to the north many times, and it is not often the hunters have the opportunity to kill a white bear. I convinced Alford to bring his ship close, and as a group, we rendered that bear insensible. The hunters lashed it to Alford's ship, and it floated alongside for us for a day until we were sure it no longer breathed. Alford secured the ship to a solid ground on the other side of the strait so that the hunters could make camp to skin the bear. Bear meat was shared evenly among all hunters who brought down the bear, and Alford kept the bear skin. At this point, Maria, Gehrman's wife, and her two daughters brought out a great white pelt for all to see. The light from the windows and the fire made the pelt shimmer, and the audience reached out to touch the thick white fur. There was an incident, though, said Thorkel, one that was quite unusual. We did not know what to make of it. While we were at our camp, one of the hunters, Elf from Derns, wandered off from the rest of the group, as hunters from Derns are wont to do. The audience laughed, as they all knew that Greenlanders from Derns, the settlement further, furthest west, were an independent sort. Unfortunately, he walked onto the insecure ice floe and found himself drifting into the strait. The current carried him swiftly north, and by the time we realized he was gone, he was but a speck in the distance. It was getting dark, and we could not go out after him. The next morning, we left the camp to go further north, where we would find walrus, but we did not see Elf. We did see some human figures, though, said Ulfur. They were covered in fur clothing and in small boats made of skin. They did not approach us and soon disappeared. We were not prepared to follow them as we were beginning our trip back to Lewisport the next day. Magnus had been listening to this tale, wondering at the fearlessness of these Greenland hunters who worked together in a very hostile environment for, to bring down their game. They were not the independent and competitive hunters that he was familiar with at Orkney and Caithness. He, like the rest of the audience, caught his breath when Oliver spoke of the humans he'd seen in the distance. Who were these people? Scraylings, that's who they were. 
exclaimed Garamond. I took many trips to Markland in my younger years. That is how I got the wood you see in my home. He swept his hand around the room, pointing to the beams, the posts, the doors. We came across railings a couple of times. They blend easily into the background with their fur clothing. We saw two rowing their boat in the bay where we were moored. They took off as soon as we noticed them. Are they here in Greenland? He looked at Father Loras, the most learned person in the room. Has such a thing been written in one of your manuscripts? Father Loras was relaxing in front of the fire in one of the chairs, drinking a warm drink made with summer berries. The Breda Hill Church, where he ministered, was located on Gurman's farmstead, and Loras spent a lot of time in this comfortable household. He was half listening to the talk of the hunt and half thinking of the music he was planning for the Yuletide season. As a young priest, he sang in the great Gergaros Cathedral and was teaching some Greenlanders the prayers and chants he learned there. He looked up, surprised that he had been addressed. I've never heard of Skraelings in this land, he searched his memory. I've only read of priests traveling to Vanland and Markland in the hopes of converting the Skraelings to Christianity. That is, as close as Skraelings have come to our settlement. These missions were never a success. He then added, the Skraelings are children of God, and surely they deserve God's blessing, if they are indeed here. The light was beginning to fade. Several neighbors got up to leave. Magnus and Uni approached Gurum and Oracle. When you come to Garter for the festivities, you are welcome to stay with me, offered Magnus. He knew that Paul would likely be staying at the bishop's residence during the ceremonies. The two Westerners each held out their hand, accepting his offer. Magnus added, Uni and I have been talking of sailing to Leos Fjord next spring after the Athling. I would like to explore the western settlement and, and North Sutter. Perhaps we can do this together. Magnus and Uni returned to the cathedral, which was bustling with activity despite the late hour. The unmailing and blessing of the holy artifacts would take place on Sunday in three days' time. Masses would be held using these relics several times a day, culminating in a massive feast on Friday night. The cathedral dedication ceremony would take place the next day. Already some booths were set up on the great field in front of the cathedral, and soon more families would be arriving, adding their booths and sleeping tents. Helga, the cook, who was supervising the kitchen servants preparing the meals that would be served in the great hall, was also responsible for ensuring that the storerooms were kept stocked throughout the week with food. The cargo ship arrived at the furniture, and Nagley and his men were setting up tables, benches, and chairs for the parishioners. Platforms were being built next to the cathedral that would be stages for the bishop, the law speaker, priests, scalds, and musicians. Greenlanders would want for nothing, proclaimed Bishop Arneson, and this would be the largest and most festive gathering that any had ever seen. 
The dedication of the Garter Cathedral, indeed, had gone very well, and contented Greenlanders returned to their homesteads, loaded down with dried meat and fish and grain to tide them over for the winter months. The fall and winter were mild, and the spring thaw came early. The annual gathering of the Afling took place on the field surrounding the cathedral in mid-April, and the bishop's ship departed Einesfjord for the western settlement in late April. Magnus and Father Lurus stood at the prow of the bishop's ship for that Uni Sorlison was guiding carefully into the open sea. Hugging the coastline, the ship rounded the tip of Greenland and headed north. The bishop permitted his longship for this expedition to Norseter after he heard from Father Laris and Father Scully about the Skralings who appeared during the summer hunting trip. Our church has an obligation to bring all those living in our land to the salvation that Christ offers them. The bishop instructed his two clergy to go on the northern voyage and make contact with the Skralings. He had heard of missionaries journeying to the western lands on such mission, missions, and now the heathens were right on his doorstep. A successful conversion would increase Garter's reputation in Rome and would also increase its wealth and trading power. Magnus had been very busy over the winter months. Magnus and Olfer, son of German Gardenson, paid visits to neighboring farmsteads, talking to farmers who would sail to the western lands. Word spread that a trip to Markland to get wood was planned later on in the summer. Several seamen and hunters were interested in sailing with Olfer and his ship. Before leaving Garter, Magnus said farewell to Paul Olison and to the Icelander Einstein Eriksson. They would return to their homeland on board the cargo ship that was sailing to Norway. The ship was loaded with trade goods gathered the previous year by Greenland farmers and hunters. Paul reminded Magnus about the amulet that Magnus's father, Havard, always wore on his sea voyages to protect him and to ensure a safe return to Orkney. Havard had passed this amulet on to his son, Magnus. The bronze locket contained medicinal plants collected by a work ancestor many generations ago. It was crafted by a priest in the Holy Land after the priest witnessed the plant's healing power. Magnus took the locket from his sturdy bronze, with its sturdy bronze chain, out of his sea chest, and he placed it around his neck. The northern trip had become a mission. The long ship flew the flag of Norway and the bishop's standard as it slowly na navigated the sandbars and ice flows of Muliusfjord, heading towards the settlement of Sandness. The garter parter party was met with hospitality by the Sandness families. Soon they were on their way to the Greenland Sea with Father Scully, Gorm Edwinson, and Thorgal Magnuson on board. A strong current carried them north, sailing alongside the huge icebergs to the hunting grounds. 
they dropped anchor in the shallow water of a bay protected by a large island, Bear Island. Meltwater flowed from the land into the bay as the temperature and hours of sunlight increased. Rocky beaches and green scrubland lined the shoreline, backed by rugged, snow-capped mountains. Glaciers glimmered in the distance. Unlike the flat land and plateaus surrounding the fjords of the eastern and western settlements, the terrain would not be friendly to farming or raising livestock. Fathers Lawrence and Scully stood on the ship's deck looking out upon this rugged land. They conferred with one another and Uni, the helmsman, about how to proceed once they reached their destination. Their decision was for the party to remain on board for a couple of days and see if the Skralings appeared. It was well known that the Skralings were a curious people and would likely show themselves if at a distance. There was little concern for their safety as the bay where they were moored was large, well-protected, and calm. On day three, two skin boats appeared, emerging from a channel on the other side of the island. Two fur-clad figures sat in each boat. After taking in the large ship and their passengers, they quickly turned and disappeared into the channel. Another day passed. Magnus and the others on board noted the abundance of fish and sea animals in the bay, a hunter's paradise. On the fifth day, a single skin boat emerged, carrying two passengers, an older woman dressed in furs and a man in Greenland garb. It was Alf of Derns, the lost hunter. Alf waved and shouted at Uni and Magnus, who stood at the bow, and to the black-robed fathers who stood behind them. The old woman paddled alongside the ship so that Uni and Magnus could help Alf climb aboard. Alf's right leg was wrapped thickly in furs, and he was not able to fully bear his weight on it. They led Alf to a bench where he sat down heavily, tears in his eyes, repeating words of gratitude over and over. Father Loris and Scully sat by his side, consoling him, while Gurum and Thurkle stared in disbelief that Alf was still alive. The woman prepared to turn her boat around. Wait, cried Father Loris, who saw the woman leaving and remembered the purpose of their voyage. He stood at the rail, holding out his hand towards the woman and singing a prayer to her in Latin. The woman stopped paddling and looked at the black-robed man, listening to his strange sounds. Laris gestured to her to come toward the ship. As she was considering what to do, Alf clambered to the rail, helped by Father Scully. She saved my life, Father Laris. I was stranded on an ice floe for many days, and my leg was injured when I crashed through a hole in the ice. Miss Graylings found me and took me to their camp. I stayed in her snow house as she nursed me back to health. I saw her heal many of her people. We must thank her and welcome her. Magnus touched his amulet as he listened to Alf's words, a healer, just like his mother and his grandmother and so many of his ancestors. Alf 
What name should we call her by? asked Father Lars. They call her Anna. I picked up a couple of words of their language. I do not believe she will come aboard this ship, but she might stay close by. Alf smiled at Anna, and Father Lars sang another prayer, as it appeared that this singing had aroused her curiosity. Anna slowly turned her boat towards the shore, looking back at Alf and Father Lars. She stepped onto the shore and called out towards the channel where another skin boat appeared, this one containing a young man who paddled towards her. Both the healer and the boy stood on the shore, studying the long ship. The young man began gathering branches and rocks to make a shelter. That is Anna's grandson. He lives with her, helping her as she travels about the camp. His name is Aput. It looks like they are setting up a camp. Alf was explaining this as Father Loras was singing a chant. He was quite enjoying himself, singing in the crisp cold air the sound of his voice reverberating off the rocks and cliffs. This was almost as good as a choir in the cathedral. When he stopped singing, he turned to Father Scully. I think we should go ashore, Father Scully, and make contact as our bishop has instructed us to do. Father Scully nodded in agreement and turned to Uni asking for some camp equipment. A skip was brought up on deck out of the hold by one of the oarsmen and put in the water. I will go with you, offered Magnus. He turned to Uni. My presence will show that we are ready to protect our priests, but it would be wise for you and your men to stay with the ship in case the Skraelings decide to attack by sea. Uni looked relieved to hear this. We will just stay on shore one or two nights at the most and see what happens. Alf spoke up. I will come with you if you can help me into the skiff. Anna and Apple know me. The skip was lowered into the bay, and the two priests, Magnus and Elf, got in with cooking pots and utensils, clay dishes, bedding, bread, meat, and coals to start the fire. They rode to a spot not far from where Anna was sitting, and Apple was building a shelter. Father Scully carried a carved wooden box containing the gifts that the priests were to present to the Skraeling should they make contact. Alf was helped into a makeshift bed of furs. The others set up a shelter and started a fire with wood they brought with them. A pot filled with water was placed on the fire. Anna and Aput took all of this in, inching closer as the father Scully began cooking meat on the fire and sharing bread with the others. Father Laris, on the other hand, facing the Skraelings, softly sang a Latin prayer he had learned at Nidaros. Oh, how marvelous is the foreknowledge of the divine heart, which foreknew all creation. For when God looked on the face of man whom he formed, he saw all his works whole, in that same human form. Oh, how marvelous is the inspiration that in this way roused man to life. Soon Anna came close to Elf 
who was stretched out on his bed and began removing the furs and wrappings made of moss and leaves from his leg. Alpac came closer to the fire and was given bread and some meat in a clay bowl. A look of disgust came across his face when he tasted the meat. He pointed to a piece of raw fish. The scully was slicing with a knife and seemed satisfied with that. Magnus looked on as Anna inspected Alf's leg, where a deep gash was still healing. He saw her reach into a pouch to extract containers of seal fat and moss, applying these to the open wound. Alpid brought a bag from the boat containing leaves and sea kelp that she carefully wrapped around the leg. She sat back nodding to Alf. Before returning to her shelter with Alfred, she picked up one of the copper pots, taking it back with her to her shelter to inspect it. At this point, Father Scully brought out the wooden box containing the gifts that he and Father Laris, who had stopped singing, wanted to present, and left the box sitting next to the fire. Magnus could not sleep. He kept guard, watching the long ship and the sleeping campers. Skin boats appeared off and on in the channel, but never stayed very long. He dozed off, and when he awoke, he saw that three skin boats were hauled up on the shore further down the bay. One fur-clad man was in the shallow water fishing with a pole, and the other two were sitting on the beach eating. Anna was walking along the shoreline past the Greenlanders' camp, looking for something in the tidal water. Magnus got up and slowly followed Anna down the beach. He wondered if she was searching for some of her medicinal plants. She turned to look at him, then continued on her search. She stopped and picked up a plump-looking marine animal and was inspecting it when Magnus came closer to see what it was that she held. Her hands were covered with slime oozing out of the undulating worm-like creature. She sat down on the beach and placed it on a large rock, then took a bone knife from her belt, slicing the worm in two. More slime oozed out as she began skinning it. Magnus sat nearby, fascinated. He placed his hands on his chest, feeling the weight of the bronze amulet underneath his wool coat. After she removed the skin and placed it on another rock, Anna looked up at Magnus, then to his chest. He pointed to the place where the amulet was resting next to his heart, then removed the amulet from under his tunic, turning it over in the sunlight so that it softly glowed. She nodded then removed from her jacket a worn leather pouch decorated with small shells and feathers. This was her amulet. Magnus wanted to ask her a question. What did she use the skin and the marine worm or slug for? He was sure it had some medicinal purpose. She wanted he watched Anna carefully roll the sliced worm and the skin in moss and placed it in a pouch. Then she surprised him by handing the pouch to him. He accepted it gratefully and placed it in a large pocket in his coat. 
They got up and walked back to the camp. The two priests were preparing to make their presentation of gifts to Anna and Alfred. They asked the Greenlanders and Magnus to sit on one side of the fire and invited two jesters, the Skraelings, to also sit. Father Lars sang a prayer as Father Scully placed the gift box in front of Anna. He opened it. She he opened it for her, revealing a woven woolen shawl a copper cup, and a carved wooden cross. Anna carefully inspected each item. She wrapped the shawl around her bare head and put the cross inside her fur coat. Apet laid out two fish that he caught that morning as a reciprocal gift. Anna and Apet got up to leave, but before they left the campsite, Apet pointed to a clay bowl and a knife. Father Laris placed these items on top of the box and handed the box to Anna. The ceremony was over. Their mission was a success. The two priests, Magnus and El, returned to Uni's ship. Gorham and Thurgo hunted seal while they were waiting and trapped a white fox on Bear Island. They had not been disturbed by the Skraelings, although they were never very far away. They had eaten fresh fish every night. The long ship sailed out of the strait, fighting the northern current as they turned south to return to the western settlement. The seamen talked confidently about sailing to Markland in a month's time. They imagined they could see it across the strait. Magnus dared not unwrap the pouch containing the strange creature that Anna had given him. He did not know enough about medicinal properties to understand the worm's significance, but he would bring it back to shopping say where his mother and sister would inspect it. He was so convinced that it contained healing powers that he was going to place this fragment of the skin inside of his amulet.